Hey all, and welcome to Chapterwise, where I take public domain or other authorized use works of fiction and narrate them for you one chapter at a time. If you like what you hear, please follow my channel. If you love what you hear, please consider supporting my channel. And if you're already a supporter, thank you so much. Your support is what allows me to keep putting more content here for everyone to enjoy. Now, on to what you came here for. Your chapter for today. Vendetta, or a story of one forgotten, by Marie Corelli. Original publication date, 1886. Chapter 21 For a moment I lost my self-possession. I scarcely remember now what I did. I know I clasped her almost roughly in my arms. I know that I kissed her passionately on lips, throat, and brow, and that in the fervor of my embraces the thought of what manner of vile thing she was came swiftly upon me, causing me to release her with such suddenness that she caught at the back of a chair to save herself from falling. Her breath came and went in little quick gasps of excitement. Her face was flushed. She looked astonished, yet certainly not displeased. So she was not angry, but I was, thoroughly annoyed, bitterly vexed with myself, for being such a fool. Forgive me, I muttered. I forgot, I... A little smile stole around the corners of her mouth. You are fully pardoned, she said in a low voice. You need not apologize. Her smile deepened. Suddenly she broke into a rippling laugh, sweet and silvery as a bell a laugh that went through me like a knife. Was it not the self-same laughter that had pierced my brain the night I witnessed her amorous interview with Guido in the avenue? Had not the cruel mockery of it nearly driven me mad? I could not endure it. I sprung to her side. She ceased laughing and looked at me in wide-eyed wonderment. Listen, I said in an impatient, almost fierce tone. Do not laugh like that. It jars my nerves. It hurts me. I will tell you why. Once, long ago in my youth, I loved a woman. She was not like you. No, for she was false. False to the very heart's core. False in every word she uttered. You understand me? She resembled you in nothing. Nothing. But she used to laugh at me. She trampled on my life and spoiled it. She broke my heart. It is all past now, I never think of her. Only your laughter reminded me. There. And I took her hands and kissed them. I have told you the story of my early folly. Forget it and forgive me. It is time you prepared for your journey, is it not? If I can be of service to you, command me. You know where to send for me. Goodbye, and the peace of a pure conscience be with you. And I laid my burning hand on her head, weighted with its clustering curls of gold, she thought this gesture was one of blessing. I thought, God knows what I thought. Yet surely, if curses can be so bestowed, my curse crowned her at that moment. I dared not trust myself longer in her presence, and without another word or look, I left her and hurried from the house. I knew she was startled and at the same time gratified to think she could thus have moved me to any display of emotion, but I would not even turn my head to catch her parting glance. I could not. I was sick of myself and of her. 
I was literally torn asunder between love and hatred. Love born basely of material feeling alone. Hatred, the offspring of a deeply injured spirit for whose wrong there could scarce be found sufficient remedy. Once out of the influence of her bewildering beauty, my mind grew calmer, and the drive back to the hotel in my carriage through the sweet dullness of the December air quieted the feverish excitement of my blood and restored me to myself. It was a most lovely day, bright and fresh with the savor of the sea in the wind. The waters of the bay were of a steel-like blue shading into deep olive green, and a soft haze lingered about the shores of Amalfi like a veil of gray, shot through with silver and gold. Down the streets went women in picturesque garb carrying on their heads baskets full to the brim of purple violets that scented the air as they passed. Children, ragged and dirty, ran along, pushing the luxuriant tangle of their dark locks away from their beautiful wild antelope eyes, and holding up bunches of roses and narcissus with smiles as brilliant as the very sunshine, implored the passengers to buy for the sake of the little Jesus who was soon coming. Bells clashed and clanged from the churches in honor of San Tommaso, whose festival it was, and the city had that aspect of gala gaiety about it, which is, in truth, common enough to all continental towns, but which seems strange to the solemn Londoner who sees so much apparently reasonless merriment for the first time. He, accustomed to have his reluctant laughter pumped out of him by an occasional visit to the theater where he can witness the original English translation of a French farce, cannot understand why these foolish Neapolitans should laugh and sing and shout in the manner they do, merely because they are glad to be alive. And after much dubious consideration, he decides within himself that they are all rascals, the scum of the earth, and that he and he only is the true representative of man at his best, the model of civilized respectability, and a mournful spectacle he thus seems to the eyes of us base foreigners. In our hearts, we are sorry for him and believe that if he could manage to shake off the fetters of his insular customs and prejudices, he might almost succeed in enjoying life as much as we do. As I drove along, I saw a small crowd at one of the street corners, a gesticulating, laughing crowd, listening to an improvisatore or wandering poet, a plump-looking fellow who had all the rhymes of Italy at his fingers' ends and who could make a poem on any subject, or an acrostic on any name, with perfect faculty. I stopped my carriage to listen to his extemporized verses, many of which were really admirable, and tossed him three francs. He threw them up in the air one after the other and caught them as they fell in his mouth, appearing to have swallowed them all. Then, with an inimitable grimace, he pulled off his tattered cap and said, Ancora, famado excellenza. I am still hungry, amid the renewed laughter of his easily amused audience. A merry poet he was, and without conceit, and his good humor merited the extra silver pieces I gave him, which caused him to wish me bon appetito e un sorriso della Madonna. A good appetite to you, and a smile of the Madonna. Imagine the Lord Laureate of England standing at the corner of Regent Street, swallowing halfpence for his rhymes. Yet some of the quaint conceits strung together by such a fellow as this improvisatore might furnish material for many of the so-called poets 
whose names are mysteriously honored in Britain. Further on, I came upon a group of red-capped coral fishers assembled round a portable stove, whereon roasting chestnuts cracked their glossy sides and emitted savory odors. The men were singing gaily to the thrumming of an old guitar, and the song they sung was familiar to me. Stay. Where had I heard it? Let me listen. Ah, I remember now. When I had crawled out of the vault through the brigand's hole of entrance, when my heart had bounded with glad anticipations never to be realized, when I had believed in the worth of love and friendship, when I had seen the morning sun glittering on the sea and had thought, poor fool, that his long beams were like so many golden flags of joy hung up in heaven to symbolize the happiness of my release from death and my restoration to liberty. Then, then, I had heard a sailor's voice in the distance singing that ritornello and I had fondly imagined its impassioned lines were all for me. Hateful music, most bitter sweetness. I could have put my hands up to my ears to shut out the sound of it now that I had thought of the time when I had heard it last. For then I had possessed a heart, a throbbing, passionate, sensitive thing, alive to every emotion of tenderness and affection. Now that heart was dead and cold as a stone. Only its corpse went with me everywhere weighing me down with itself to the strange grave it occupied, a grave wherein were also buried so many dear delusions, such plaintive regrets, such pleading memories, that surely it was no wonder their small ghosts arose and haunted me, saying, Wilt thou not weep for this lost sweetness? Wilt thou not relent before such a remembrance? Or hast thou no desire for that past delight? But to all such inward temptations my soul was deaf and inexorable. Justice, stern, immutable justice, was what I sought and what I meant to have. Maybe you find it hard to understand the possibility of scheming and carrying out so prolonged a vengeance as mine. If you that read these pages are English, I know it will seem to you well-nigh incomprehensible. The temperate blood of the northerner, combined with his open on suspicious nature, has, I admit, the advantage over us in matters of personal injury. An Englishman, so I hear, is incapable of nourishing a long and deadly resentment, even against an unfaithful wife. He is too indifferent. He thinks it not worth his while. But we Neapolitans, we can carry a vendetta through a lifetime. Aye, through generation after generation. This is bad, you say? immoral, unchristian? No doubt. We are more than half pagans at heart. We are as our country and our traditions have made us. It will need another visitation of Christ before we shall learn how to forgive those that despitefully use us. Such a doctrine seems to us a mere play upon words, a weak maxim only fit for children and priests. Besides, did Christ himself forgive Judas? The gospel does not say so. When I reached my own apartments at the hotel, I felt worn out and fagged. I resolved to rest and receive no visitors that day. While giving my orders to Vincenzo, a thought occurred to me. I went to a cabinet in the room and unlocked a secret drawer. In it lay a strong leather case. I lifted this and bade Vincenzo unstrap and open it. He did so, nor showed the least sign of surprise when a pair of richly ornamented pistols was displayed for his view. Good weapons, I remarked in a casual manner, 
My valet took each one out of the case and examined them both critically. They need cleaning, Excellenza. Good, I said briefly. Then clean them and put them in good order. I may require to use them. The imperturbable Vincenzo bowed and, taking the weapons, prepared to leave the room. Stay. He turned. I looked at him steadily. I believe you are a faithful fellow, Vincenzo, I said. He met my glance frankly. The day may come, I went on quietly, when I shall perhaps put your fidelity to the proof. The dark Tuscan eyes, keen and clear the moment before, flashed brightly and then grew humid. Excellenza, you have only to command. I was a soldier once, I know what duty means. But there is a better service. Gratitude. I am your poor servant, but you have won my heart. I would give my life for you, should you desire it. He paused, half ashamed of the emotion that threatened to break through his mask of impassibility, bowed again, and would have left me, but that I called him back and held out my hand. Shake hands, Emiko, I said simply. He caught it with an astonished yet pleased look, and stooping kissed it before I could prevent him, and this time literally scrambled out of my presence with an entire oblivion of his usual dignity. Left alone, I considered this behavior of his with half-pained surprise. This poor fellow loved me, it was evident. Why, I knew not. I had done no more for him than any other master might have done for a good servant. I had often spoken to him with impatience, even harshness. And yet I had won his heart, so he said. Why should he care for me? Why should my poor old butler Giacomo cherish me so devotedly in his memory? Why should my very dog still love and obey me when my nearest and dearest, my wife and my friend, had so gladly forsaken me and were so eager to forget me. Perhaps fidelity was not the fashion now among educated persons. Perhaps it was a worn-out virtue left to the basque people, to the vulgar, and to animals. Progress might have attained this result, no doubt it had. I sighed wearily and threw myself down in an armchair near the window and watched the white-sailed boats skimming like flecks of silver across the blue-green water. The tinkling of a tambourine by and by attracted my wandering attention, and looking into the street just below my balcony, I saw a young girl dancing. She was lovely to look at, and she danced with exquisite grace as well as modesty. But the beauty of her face was not so much caused by perfection of feature or outline as by a certain wistful expression that had in it something of nobility and pride. I watched her. At the conclusion of her dance, she held up her tambourine with a bright but appealing smile. Silver and copper were freely flung to her, I contributing my quota to the amount. But all she received she at once emptied into a leathern bag which was carried by a young and handsome man who accompanied her, and who, alas, was totally blind. I knew the couple well, and had often seen them. Their history was pathetic enough. The girl had been betrothed to the young fellow when he had occupied a fairly good position as a worker in silver filigree jewelry. His eyesight, long painfully strained over his delicate labors, suddenly failed him. He lost his place, of course, and was utterly without resources. He offered to release his fiancée from her engagement, but she would not take her freedom. She insisted on marrying him at once. 
she had her way and devoted herself to him soul and body, danced in the streets and sung to gain a living for herself and him, taught him to weave baskets so that he might not feel himself entirely dependent on her, and she sold these baskets for him so successfully that he was gradually making quite a little trade of them. Poor child, for she was not much more than a child, what a bright face she had, glorified by the self-denial and courage of her everyday life. No wonder she had won the sympathy of the warm-hearted and impulsive Neapolitans. They looked upon her as a heroine of romance, and as she passed through the streets, leading her blind husband tenderly by the hand, there was not a creature in the city, even among the most abandoned and vile characters, who would have dared to offer her the least insult or who would have ventured to address her otherwise than respectfully. She was good, innocent, and true. How was it, I wondered dreamily, that I could not have won a woman's heart like hers? Were the poor alone to possess all the old world virtues, honor and faith, love and loyalty? Was there something in a life of luxury that sapped virtue at its root? Evidently, early training had little to do with after results, for had not my wife been brought up among an order of nuns renowned for simplicity and sanctity? Had not her own father declared her to be as pure as a flower on the altar of the Madonna? And yet the evil had been in her, and nothing had eradicated it, for even religion with her was a mere graceful sham, a kind of theatrical effect used to tone down her natural hypocrisy. My own thoughts began to harass and weary me. I took up a volume of philosophic essays and began to read, in an endeavor to distract my mind from dwelling on the one perpetual theme. The day wore on slowly enough, and I was glad when the evening closed in and when Vincenzo, remarking that the night was chilly, kindled a pleasant wood fire in my room and lighted the lamps. A little while before my dinner was served, he handed me a letter stating that it had just been brought by the Countess Romani's coachman. It bore my own seal and motto. I opened it. It was dated La Santissima Annunziata, and ran as follows. Beloved, I arrived here safely. The nuns are delighted to see me, and you will be made heartily welcome when you come. I think of you constantly. How happy I felt this morning. You seem to love me so much. Why are you not always so fond of your faithful Nina? I crumpled this note fiercely in my hand and flung it into the leaping flames of the newly lighted fire. There was a faint perfume about it that sickened me, a subtle odor like that of a civet cat when it moves stealthily after its prey through a tangle of tropical herbage. I always detested scented notepaper. I'm not the only man who does so. One is led to fancy that the fingers of the woman who writes upon it must have some poisonous or offensive taint about them, which she endeavors to cover by the aid of a chemical concoction. I would not permit myself to think of this so faithful Nina, as she styled herself. I resumed my reading and continued it even at dinner, during which meal Vincenzo waited upon me with his usual silent gravity and decorum though I could feel that he watched me with a certain solicitude. I suppose I looked weary, I certainly felt so, and retired to rest unusually early. The time seemed to me so long, 
Would the end never come? The next day dawned and trailed its tiresome hours after it, as a prisoner might trail his chains of iron fetters until sunset. And then, then, when the gray of the wintry sky flashed for a brief space into glowing red, then, while the water looked like blood and the clouds like flame, then a few words sped along the telegraph lines that stilled my impatience, roused my soul, and braced every nerve and muscle in my body to instant action. They were plain, clear, and concise. From Guido Ferrari, Rome, to Il Conte Cesare Oliva, Naples. Shall be with you on the 24th. Train arrives at 6.30 p.m. Will come to you as you desire, without fail. That's it for today's chapter, everyone. Thanks for coming along on the ride. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please consider supporting my channel. And as always, whatever platform you're listening on, just know that I deeply appreciate the time you spend with me here. Please don't forget to like and subscribe. See you next time.